21st century Renaissance. Episode 2 of Glass, Color, and Light, Seeing Anew with Dr. Don McPherson. Oh my God! <laughs> I can't even imagine how different the world looks, I swear to God. Wow, that is amazing. This pink, like this. <laughs> wow. I am actually, I'm actually crying. I got to see my first sunrise. No way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no. No way. No way. It always. No. <laughs> Is this purple? Yes. What the? Oh my god! Oh my god, everything looks so different! Morgan, turn around and look at the purple! Oh my god, purple looks so red! Take a look at this! Oh my god, that is not blue anymore! That's a new color! Put the glasses on and then open your eyes and then look at the page, maybe. Does it look different? Hello everyone, I'm Bei Bei Song. My guest today is Dr. Don McPherson, inventor, co-founder, and chief science officer of Inchroma, maker of the special glasses that you've just seen in the series of videos with emotional reactions from people trying them on for the first time. Inchroma corrects certain types of color blindness, a disorder that affects 350 million people worldwide. Dong received a Small Business Innovation Research SBIR Tibet Award at the White House in recognition for his work developing Enchroma and was named an AAAS Lemosin Invention Ambassador by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He's the recipient of seven grants from National Eye Institute, National Institutes of Health, and National Cancer Institute, and author of 14 scientific papers. Don holds eight patents related to Enchroma lenses, as well as Vitrezzle, artisan glass countertops containing over 95% recycled material. In this conversation, we talk about his journey as an artist, scientist, then a serial inventor and entrepreneur, a journey of perseverance interspersed with serendipity. We talk not just about the art and science of color vision, the history of glass, Enchroma's lens filter technology, but also the philosophy of perception and the paradox of color psychology. Like many of Inchroma's fans, I'm impressed by Don's successful venture in reaching people's sensory experience and changing their lives, success that they're now expanding to make education more accessible to children and to improve safety for the aging. But I'm also surprised by his candid reflection on entrepreneurship and his humble introspection contemplating what we color normals can learn from the color deficient, a question that has left me pondering as well. Join us in our kaleidoscope of topics and see if you too will come away with new perspectives.
Okay, all right, Dom. I am very excited to meet you finally after hearing about your <laughs> yes, Took a uh, your company in Chroma and, and you for about four years. I think the first time I heard about the company was uh, back in 2018. And I've since told your stories in multiple talks. And uh, based on uh, what I read in, in secondary research, public information, and now I get to talk to you directly. As I got to know you a little more leading up to this, I realized how um, you embody almost all of the cornerstone themes of my, of my podcast. And also, uh, you, you kind of the inspiring role model of, for my uh, coaching clients who are creators, you know, inventors and entrepreneurs and innovators. So this is very, uh, uh, very exciting. But before we get into all of that, the yeah. art and science and, and, and glass colors, uh, let me so tell you more about the real uh, life situation that I was, I was um, uh, alluding to a little bit in the email. So we were, as you know, we were in Paris, or we were on a European tour over the summer. Our last stop was in Paris. We spent a few days with um, our friends. They were graciously hosting us um, and in their um, in-laws' apartment. And during those four uh, four days, we realized that their sons, they have three beautiful adult sons, are all uh, colorblind. <laughs> the father, wow. the father is a musician, and the mother uh, is an artist, although running a winery in Italy. Their house, uh, their living room was up for a repainting. They were remodeling the, the living room. And she was laying out, being the, um, you know, the artist with, with good taste, wanted to paint the walls in different colors, making it colorful. And she laid out all these big swatches, big samples of mm. paints on the floor. They're, they're quite vibrant and um, all different kinds of shades and, and um, uh, hues uh, working with, uh, with, a, with a painter. But knowing that her sons <laughs> will not see these colors, he asked a friend of their son, one of the, their sons, who happens to have the same condition to, to see what he sees. And so he was, she was pointing to a, uh, one of the colors is like hot pink, like a really saturated pink, probably yeah. even more so than my blouse. Like probably a fish, some, like, like a something fuchsia. like this, yes. Yeah. And she asked the friend to point to what he thinks that that was like. And he pointed to a pretty dull beige color. Yep. So I was almost like, oh, that's such a shame, all these beautiful colors she's trying to put together, but also knows that her sons will not see. And it's even more made profound because the, the sons, two of them work in restaurants. Like the, the, the middle son is a, a sommelier in a Michelin two-star restaurant. And the, the youngest one that I, we met, how such a charming boy, he's a chef, he's a, a young chef at an Italian restaurant. Right. So, you know, food and, yeah. and wine, it's a lot about the, the a big part of the sensory experience is, is yeah. not only the it's taste like, and smell, but also colors, right? Yeah, it's the whole thesis, <laughs> of, it's the whole thesis of Gene Houston. 
right? <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. yeah, it's like, I can't, I've, that's for me, getting into the, an understanding of color deficiency is that's the one that I have the biggest problem with. Mm. Like, I can't imagine what I would do if I, if I looked at a salad I just made and it looked monotone. Mm -hmm, I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't know how I'd eat it. I guess you just get past that. But to yeah. me, uh, such a huge part of the experience of eating is the color. Right, right. If you're looking at the wine, you know, the, you don't see at the actual color. And or if you yep. for, for Italian cuisine, this ripe tomato versus something that is not right, right. Yep. Or an apple, a Granny Smith versus, I don't know, a, a food basil. Fresh, fresh basil uh, yeah, you know, it just goes exactly. on and on and on and on right and you right. think about like if you've ever gardened one of the great joys is growing different varieties mm. of tomatoes because they can run the whole color gamut from green yes. to, to purple yes almost uh -huh. black exactly right? yeah we and have some in the in the garden back and then there. they have these contrasting interior uh like seed and and the integuments can be like contrasting colors and it's just like absolutely some of the most beautiful things you've ever seen just this mm -hmm. little world in a in a tomato mm -hmm. right yeah so exactly if you, if you can't see that like how i just you, you i just think, so i'm saying like my under i don't because part of it's like now i get to pop that in my mouth <laughs> you know? but but do i pick or not uh, are they green or are they red yes. is it red are they ready to pick you know yep and so so seeing that and of course i had you in in mind and in, in chroma which i talked about in my presentation in romania before uh, paris yeah. and so that was in my mind and i thought oh what a i can't think of a better gift um to thank them for their hospitality than your glasses that's very cool yeah yeah so so but here's the Here's the dilemma. Uh, I, I want this to be a surprise and to have the boys have the reactions that many of your customers had. You but I don't want it. exactly, but I yeah. don't want that them to, to, to be expecting, and ideally not even the parents to be expecting. But I also uh -huh. need to, to know for sure to get the right products. Yeah. Now, I we had to ask the father, and he said they are. Deutens, a uh, deutero anomaly. Uh, yeah, that's that's good. the condition, which which kind of fit the description that I yep. gave you, right? Um, but I also thought the mother, when she was there, she said something about a word with a p, which would be proton. So, right. <laughs> um, although I could be misremembering. So now, now the first question is, I looking at the the pictures on your website. The two seems to be rather similar. And I read that the, their phenotypes are indeed similar. So if I got it wrong, uh, would it not, would it work or would it not work? It would work. The, really? only real, the only real difference is that protonomaly leads to a collapsed color space. It's, it's, it's a much harder condition of anomalous trichromacy to, to uh -huh correct for because it's but we we figured out how to do it especially our okay. latest product does yeah. a very good job of improving uh color contrast perception for uh -huh. proto anomaly deuter anomaly we got and then you know 
the thing is, is that her father, I don't know if he's still alive. Oh, yes. The grandfather. The grandfather, yeah. Yeah, he, he'll have the same condition type and extent. So you could just ask him. The, yeah, they, they are, I, I realize that they are very representative of um, like a big part of the colorblind population. So both in terms of their types and also just the, yep. the profile that came from the mother yeah. who's a carrier and the father, grandfather had this condition that was yep. passed, skipped generation to come to, um, yep. to, to, the, to the boys. Yes, yes. And if they were deuteronomaly, then I guess that's the six, that's 6% of, of the male population or 6% of um, uh, yep. the, the population versus the protons. Of the two. male population, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. So, um, so the I chances are pretty good that they're deuteronomaly. Okay, okay. And if they're protonomaly, it's, it's gonna be okay too. Okay. If they're, if they're if they're dichromats and missing a photopigment, it's not going to help them. Fortunately, I think that's not the case. Yeah. So they're. Um... You know, I had an idea. You said you wanted to surprise them. Why mm. don't you? Why don't you just set up at their restaurants and capture it there? Oh. Like while they're yeah. working, basically. Okay. Okay. Because well... <laughs> especially if they're like in a food environment, like if the yeah. chef is in a food environment. Okay. He might okay. lose his. He might lose his mind. <laughs> well, that will will have to have help from the the you know at least one of the parents because we're not there. But yeah, I like that idea. But before then, for the purchase, maybe I also need to know whether they have um, a corrected like vision problem without aside from the color, right? Whether they're right. I, they didn't wear uh, glasses, but I don't know if they're wearing uh, contact. That's fine. If they wear, you sh if they're not wearing glasses, just get them the no prescription, because typically people who wear contacts don't wear glasses. That's sort of the rule of thumb, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Or they wear them twenty percent of the time. They might wear them in bed to read, or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. But if they wear, if they go out outside with contacts on, they don't wear <laughs> prescription in addition to that. That also Do adds a lot of cost and complexity. Okay. Right. Well, so I'll, maybe I'll, you know, I'll take this offline to make sure that I find the most likely successful um, product. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just thought that was um, uh, that's so a story. serendipitous. Yeah, that's that, I, I thought it, it's a good story to open our interview because it gives um, viewers, viewers and listeners who are not familiar with Inchroma um, a some context of what we are talking about. So, all right. Now, now the Enchroma story. When I learned about it, it caught my attention because as an innovation educator, um, the theme of serendipity and the accidental invention was interesting. And although um, <laughs> I'm dubious uh, of corporations attempting manufacturing serendipity and, and kind of watching the kettle to see when it's boiling, hey, is it boiling yet? But that aside, um, that was a great case study. And um, um, I'm a firm believer that chance favors the prepared mind. It's not all accidental. So let's start with that prepared mind. So your, your personal background leading up to that. So you are a uh, GLI scientist. 
but you are an artist as well. I didn't realize that your undergrad degree was in art, math, and astronomy. You're such a, <laughs> a polymath yourself. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll start with your relationship with, with glass and colors as an artist and scientist. So first of all, what made you pursue a doctorate in science? Serendipity. Hmm. I had finished up my undergraduate degree and um, this is, I am not kidding. I based a selection of a graduate school on a Barron's profile of American college, which was 10 years out of date. And I didn't bother calling them. I just drove uh, across two states to the college. Where, where was that again? Oh, New York. Up, okay. Upstate New York. Okay. And just like went into the glass blowing uh, area and talked to this professor. And he said, we don't offer an MFA anymore. We haven't offered an MFA in five years. And I was like, I, I probably appeared quite disappointed. And he said, have you ever thought about engineering? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he sent me up the hill to the, the engineering department where I talked to the provost who just on the spot said, oh, it sounds like you have an interesting background. We would probably offer you a scholarship. Oh, okay. Isn't that crazy? I mean, <laughs> just like I would say, if I was him, I would have thought this fool drove two states unprepared. <laughs> Instead, he looked at it like, oh, this is Providence. Like this guy just showed up and maybe he's supposed to be here. And okay. uh, I've subsequently talked to him, you know, 30 years after the fact. And oh he, yeah. He still remembers meeting me. So it's kind of funny. But I so I got a scholarship okay. uh, to go study mm -hmm. uh, ceramic engineering and glass science. Mm. Okay. So mm -hmm. That's how it worked out. That's how I ended up pursuing a degree. Also, I had a lot of, you know, push from my father. He said, Yes, we know you love art, but um you always are going to need something to fall back on. Yeah. Right. That's reality, unfortunately. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He kept injecting that into my life. So, you know, I, I decided to do it just because, but my motivation was not because I was going to become a, you know, a scientist. It was that I wanted to be a better glass blower uh -huh. and glass artists so i should probably understand the science behind glass sure so, so i could do um my own thing mm -hmm. make mm -hmm. my own colors whatever mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so what did you learn kind of on the highest level what did you learn about uh the, the science of glass which i guess we've had uh, like a 35 uh centuries of history in making <laughs> Yeah, that I've learned that there there are no new tricks. Or that is the the new tricks are far few and far between. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's pretty interesting, right? That the Egyptians made such beautiful cast glass pieces, some of the most elegant pieces of art I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I've seen in museums that are thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. um, just really understanding the form of the essence of a of a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that to me is like what art really should be, whether it's a quick little doodle by Picasso mm -hmm. 
-hmm. or it's something very, very complicated and you know carefully constructed. It still has to be representational of, of, of an idea or a thing or else I, I don't have any interest in it. Mm -hmm. That's probably my sort of uh, didactic brain, like having always forcing myself to make a choice. But um, there, there were some things that when I studied glass science, I was so interested in the rules. Mm -hmm. Like why is, why, why is this particular form of matter glass and why isn't it something else, right? Mm -hmm. Why isn't it crystalline? What's the what's the boundary between them? And is that flexible? Is it a yeah. flexible boundary? Mm -hmm. And why have people stopped pushing against it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And why then the, the space in, instead of transitioning mm -hmm. into another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and I had phenomenal professors who I'm still in okay. touch with, who just, you know, that's one of the things about being stuck up in the woods. Is it sort of, uh, I think a lot of the people, students and uh, the professors who ended up there had a, just did very well when they could think a lot. And, mm -hmm. you know, the small classes and, you know, very dedicated students. It's kind of a unique school. Um, when I went there with my wife, she said, wow, I wish, I, <laughs> I wish I'd known about this place. I would have gone here. Mm -hmm it's very isolated and you get to know everybody mm -hmm. and I think that was part of my education that I had been missing up until then because I was not a very good high school student I was like a star athlete so that's how oh. I, I got through you know but I actually wasn't that interested in school well so, there's something else about you <laughs> but in graduate school yeah. I was given the freedom to think mm -hmm. and I, I'd never had that before I'd had mm -hmm. interesting professors in undergraduate school, but nobody had just said, uh, you know, solve the problem. We'll teach you how to solve, but we're not going to teach you how to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So I had two professors who were my mentors mm -hmm. and one of them has passed on, unfortunately, mm -hmm. um, but the other one's still alive and kicking. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I thank him every time I see him. Mm -hmm. One of the things he said to me went, his parting shots at me after I got my PhD, he said, now, Don, remember, I taught you everything you know, but I didn't teach you everything I know. And it was like one of those like Zen master moments mm. where I had to like go, hmm, I wonder what that means. <laughs> <laughs> what didn't he teach me? And part of it is just experience, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the problem-solving skills that you were learning, you apply to um, uh, surgeon's protective shield, right? Before Enchroma? Yeah, that was, that? I, I, I did a postdoc overseas, New Zealand, and then I ended up at Hoya Optics with Japanese optics company in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I did that for a while, and then I started my own business. And yeah. Being Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley um, there's a lot of laser companies and medical companies and medical laser companies, and they became my, my client base because I would design and manufacture laser protective eyewear. So imagine, you know, I would design glass, which mm -hmm. was what I always wanted to do. When I was at Alfred, I was like, I want to design new glasses. 
I don't want to, I want them to be my glasses, my compositions, my formulas. And I did, I pushed the boundary, boundaries of glass formation into new areas that hadn't been explored before. So I would end up with a single product, but I would, that wasn't the fun part for me. In fact, it was almost anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like the 500 or 700 glass melts that I had done beforehand to map out compositional spaces and try to understand the behavior. So that for me was the fun part, the exploration, the hacking through the underbrush, mm-hmm. you know, getting to the, the pinnacle was sort of like, oh, okay, nice. But mm-hmm. so, so the uh, surgeon glasses to protect against laser, which preceded in chroma, um, was that um, uh, was that green laser beam? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was it just? Is it pure coincidence that the because your technology is it's this filter, right? This notch filter that you were filtering out the harmful laser beam at the frequency happens to coincide with um, the, the overlap of the deuterium, you know, nalpia or anomaly conditions? Or did yeah. you have to optimize after you accidentally realized that, that, that property? Did you have to, See, like, what was the technological challenge that you had to okay. solve? So- the, the way these laser protective eyewear worked is they had to absorb very strongly at one particular wavelength, which mm-hmm. is the green. Um, and the, the, the way I did it as I use this, this, this has been known since the 1930s that you could um, absorb, that certain types of elements called rare earths have very narrow absorption bands and you can use them to create filters, right? Mm. People had known this. Mm -hmm. Um, But the problem was, is that the the band, the absorption Mm. band within neodymium that I wanted to use was in the wrong place. So I had to compositionally design the host material so that it would absorb at the right place. And it was really, really tricky because they're what they call inner F-shell electrons. Mm-hmm. And so they don't really feel the effect of a change in the, in the overlying um, chemical structure. So it was like this tricky science problem that I figured out how to do. Mm-hmm. But see, neodymium has other absorption bands because mm-hmm. the one in the green doesn't help you with color deficiency, but it also has a very strong uh, absorption in the yellow. Mm-hmm. which happens to correspond to the place where the green and red sensitive photopigments overlap. Mm-hmm. And for somebody who has normal color vision, this overlap occurs um, and there's no problem. But for somebody who's color deficient, the overlap is, is too great. And so this notch filter in effect, if you can visualize it kind of, reestablishes something like a correct uh, placement of these mm-hmm. photo- of these spectra so that they don't overlap as much because the way that co- the color is understood by 
our brains is it calculates the difference between mm -hmm. the signals. So it mm -hmm. takes how much green light did I receive, how much red light, and it takes the difference to determine so, something's red greenness. So that's why you chop out in yellow, because that's where the confusion mm. is, originates, because there's um, too much overlap. But so, it just so happened that the neodymium happened to absorb there, mm -hmm. because at, at that moment in time, I knew nothing mm. about colorblindness, mm. or even considered, I didn't care about, mm -hmm. you know, I was uh, so focused on this green laser and blocking mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. and the fact that it had these other bands were of no interest mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. is it um correct to kind of interpret as like it it's kind of pulling apart or separating that that overlap that that's what the filter does and so, yeah you could say it's okay. like reestablishing like something more like a normal separation Okay. Right. Okay. Just by taking mm -hmm. out light and the right wavelength. Okay. And is there a trade-off between how narrow um, and effective the separation is versus how, like, is there a, a, a decision you have to make, make as to how wide that yeah. range is? Yeah. If you make the, if you make it too wide, it has virtually no effect. Mm. Okay. Yeah. It's a fine line because if you make it too wide, you end up suppressing too much signal. Okay. So that, for instance, if you make it too wide and it's positioned more towards the green, greens will become very dark mm. and reds will become brighter relative to the greens, but, you, but the color won't be red and green. It'll just be two shades of the same thing. Mm. at different brightness and if okay. you push it the other way the same thing happens greens become a brighter version of the red which is now darker but mm. you don't actually enhance mm. uh, color perception so it's, it's okay. a very tricky little balance between getting that notch just where you want it and just the right width mm -hmm. okay okay yeah. I will probably have to listen again to uh, to kind of absorb this, but uh, um, how long did it take you to figure this out? Like find the right, you know, optimal. Uh, I, it's so funny because I knew the glasses, the laser safety glasses worked. Hmm. And so based on that, I submitted a proposal to the National Eye Institute. And, but I actually didn't really understand how they worked mm -hmm. and so what i did is i called up vision scientists i just cold called them okay. oh here's joel picorni at the university mm -hmm. of chicago he's mm -hmm. he's famous i'll call him up mm -hmm. <laughs> and i just i just called people up and there was like this universal I, i've since grown to really love the vision science community because they're just it's a small group of people there's you know, three to 500 worldwide. And uh, they're just passionate about what they do mm. there. And they have a, a lot of them are colorblind. That's the other funny oh, thing. Oh, okay. And Maybe that's what drove them to study it. Yeah, it's like possibly, right? Mm -hmm. um, Self-introspection. 
but they they uh, sort of across the board have a have a deep curiosity because they all recognize that the vision is a window into how the brain works. Mm -hmm. Because if you can understand the architecture of something like the visual system, you can probably understand the architecture of the of all living things, mm -hmm. like the cortical architecture plus some mm -hmm. really deep philosophical questions can mm -hmm. be answered about perception, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because it, it's a feedback loop. And so color deficiency offers you this additional window because mm -hmm. a normal progression of color perception it starts at an age when you're nonverbal. Right. Right. So if you can take somebody who's color deficient and suddenly give them color vision, mm. you can learn a lot. Mm -hmm. sure. And I think that some of these, some of the vision scientists I talked to right from, from the go said, yeah, you could do that. That's feasible. That makes sense. Okay. Like, okay. that's an interesting idea. So I wasn't, I wasn't discouraged. Good. And so I submitted and I started working with two clinical, two universities, UC Davis and UC Berkeley. And again, um, still friends with these professors, you know, 20 years later, um, mm. just had, you know, just sort of very curious, not, no, no, no criticism of the idea. And mm. I didn't know a thing about vision science. I mean, I knew like this much, you know, like, a a gnat's wings worth of knowledge and it's just like because they were the 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 field is so open they would just load me up with papers read this mm -hmm. read this mm -hmm. read that read this book mm -hmm. i went to conferences i just learned mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i what i learned was i didn't know anything you know there's i i can't remember who it was it was a famous quote from this jazz musician who said before you can be some become somebody you have to be nobody and that was kind of like, I went through this period of 10 years where I was just, I felt like the more I studied, the less I knew. Isn't it ironic? Um, we don't know anything about it, even though we are the beneficiary of all the colors. We just take it for granted, <laughs> right? And, yep. and never across before I heard hearing about your product, um, I guess I, I had heard about colorblindness. I have a, a friend who I was traveling together giving a talk and he was telling me about his, he can't um, figure out traffic lights and had to remember the positions. But it, did, it didn't, until I watched all the, the videos <laughs> of your customers, it didn't hit me. Like what uh, a difference. In, it yeah, me made. too. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like I had no, I couldn't have empathy before, because I didn't even know it existed. I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? You yeah. hear about it, but you don't really know what it means. You don't, it just, it's, un, it's unusual that something, and I think part of it is that it's, it's a bit uh, stigmatized. And so mm. people don't become self-advocates for it. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. You know, only 11 states test. Okay, okay. Right? And then once they identify color deficiency, they don't have a solution. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not like it's the kind of thing where you can say, you know, I I you know, I can't hear. They test for hearing and then they fix it. They figure out what the problem is, they fix it, fix it. So you can be a student that's like on a level playing field with the other students. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but with mm -hmm. color deficiency, where 80% of the information is color coded in a classroom, there's nothing to be done. 
So what do these students do? Well, they just get really good at using, uh, you know, the full set of sensation to like follow it. But a lot of the time it's, it's explained with, co with color coded language. Mm. So they just have to become really, they have to invest extra energy at figuring out what's being taught, which means they're not being able to pay attention I think to the right thing that they should be following, which is understanding the gestalt of whatever is being taught, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. they're at a disadvantage and it pisses me off. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> That's that was like the first time that I kind of like got into a huff when I started realizing talking to these adults who would describe childhood experiences where they had to, you know, figure out a way to to get the information because they weren't right. being helped. And just R yeah, rather than having direct stimuli that yes, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you totally understand this. And so that to me was like where I ended up. But getting there, I there was points, there was moments where um let me put it this way. I submitted grant applications which were all funded. There was a bunch of them in which I had a model of color vision deficiency, color correction, and color normal vision, which was not correct. But the mm. people who were reviewing it had no idea. How interesting. It, okay. Even though they were like connected to the National Eye Institute, um, because it's really obtuse and kind of hard to fathom. Some of the stuff is very difficult to, like some of it's, if you go to vision, go to school and study vision science, it's already there, you have it. But a lot of it is kind of, I don't want to call it fringe science, but it, it requires like a, a leap of faith that something like this can happen, right? So once you know that it happens, then the question is, how do you represent it? And that's what I've spent probably the last 10 years working on is how do you explain it and how do you represent it? That is, mm -hmm. when I say represent, how do you construct a model that's accurate? Because mm -hmm. I can't think unless I understand it. Sure. Right? Yeah, it's, you know, um, we, 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 we um, the normal vision, color vision people mm -hmm. have this experiential understanding, but they're not, you know, kind of looking at it um with that awareness and um what you're saying saying something about leap of faith and some that actually seemed to happen quite often um the maybe we'll talk a little uh, a little about the color and how you've been interacting with colors first as an artist and then mm -hmm. later on um out of this pursuit uh as a as a scientist and technologist so it seems that our understanding um, of colors came a lot first from the artists like you said in the interview with um, the Goethe Institute a poet <laughs> Goethe as a poet wrote about you know wrote about yep. color and that that color wheels that he came up with may or may not be scientifically precise but it seems so impressive to me and um, it, it, it has basis scientific okay. basis yeah. Okay. Because the whole and, notion of a color opponency is still well relied upon mm -hmm, you know, to explain mm -hmm. vision. So mm -hmm. yeah, no, he was right. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, another artist was uh, Kandinsky, Wassily Kandinsky, whose uh, work was a lot about color, and he was also an educator uh, about colors. And in a lot of scientific discoveries, especially, especially related to neuroscience, um, artists have this intuition first and experientially, empirically, before science comes to validate. <laughs> and right, that's a very good point. Yeah. So how will you, you know, you must have as a as an artist previously or or someone who wanted to be an artist, um, you must be working with colors in some ways, especially related to, to glass. So what were you uh how were you interacting with colors then? Intuitively, ignorantly. <laughs> no. I I loved watercolor. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh it's kind of hard to imagine when I think back how much free time I had when I was in undergraduate school because I took so many classes mm-hmm. that I would somehow manage almost daily to jump in my car and drive out into the countryside and do watercolors to mm-hmm. set up an easel someplace and mm-hmm. and paint. Mm-hmm. You know that was mm-hmm. that was how I processed all of my all of my schooling was in those moments. You know. A lot of people, I guess, process it in a sleep state, like uh, Ram, Ramanujan, right? Mm-hmm. Apparently, he used relied on the dream state to to propel his inventions. But for me, for me, it was entirely having those moments where I could. I've always fallen into art, used it as a way to process information. Mm. So I probably never would have been a very good artist even mm-hmm. though, you know, all through my art career, there was, you know, praise from teachers, mm-hmm. you know, like, but I don't think I would have been very good at it because I think it needs like a conflict to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, I've always had like a goal of like, at some point eventually being conflict free <laughs> in my head. And so I've now learned that the science part sort of replaced that like I have mm-hmm. so much joy doing science mm-hmm. and I'm not just working in vision science I have projects mm-hmm. that are just still on paper mm-hmm. but across the field food science energy science lots of different things I'm still playing around that's why I love uh. to cook it's just so when you say art and color it's the same reason I love to cook but mm-hmm. yes when I did glass uh I did printmaking, watercolor. I, I don't really know. I don't really know how color played any role. This is one of these things that you were saying that like color normal, we take it for granted. And it's not until you start thinking through the eyes of someone who's color blind or color deficient, you start thinking, wow, I'm so grateful to have color perception, mm-hmm. right? Because... Mm-hmm you realize how it just really is everything. You know who Edwin, Edwin Land was, of course, right? He had this, mm. he had this um, idea that he called the gray world hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was this thing that he made in the 19th century called the biniot top, that it was colored, brightly colored stripes and you would spin it and it would turn gray. Mm. You have to think like from the mind of someone in the early mid 19th century, like mm-hmm. that was magic. 
Mm-hmm. Right. How can mm-hmm. that be? Yeah. Right. And they were fascinating. And so, but tied into that is like Edwin Land was like, basically, if you sum up all the pixels in mm-hmm. any given scene, you end up with gray. Mm-hmm. Right. And so color plays this really important role. Right. It tells you where the edge of something is, tells you that something's like important, dangerous you know, needs to be paid attention to, is changing, like flushing skin, you know, all this stuff. It's all there to like, and we've learned how to pick up on it because it's a gray world. So we pay attention to those colored things. And so imagine if you're color deficient, you can't do that. You certainly can't do it as well. You mentioned your friend in the traffic lights, mm-hmm. but you know, it's live, it's way more subtle than that, right? Yeah, the, the colors, uh, I forgot who, who kind of gave this framework had at least four properties. You know, they, they're comparative, uh, connotive, denotive, and uh, aesthetic uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So the middle two, the connotive, you know, uh, what colors implied meanings uh, yep. in terms of in the, the traffic, you know, stop, red being, meaning stop or or denotive, com- comparative, so that you can communicate with others in the world. And, and of course, the, um, right. all of the static values that uh, artists rely on. Yeah. Um, we didn't know and just live in that world. And now, as both artists and then scientists, then you can, you, you can uh, look at this more intellectually and with more yes. consciousness. Mm-hmm. But I think artists end up looking at their work almost entirely intellectually. Right. That's why for a lot of great artists, the work gets simplified as they get older. Although in the case of some artists, it's because they're losing their vision. But that's another story. Right. right. But I think that like that's part of the ref- what they call like in the I Ching, like the refinement of the essence. Right. Where you're mm-hmm. you're constantly striving to just end up with a, a less complicated view of existence. Right. Yes. And I think that you have to kind of go deep into something to get there. And for me, it turns out to be color vision because it's never ending. You will, I will never, ever, ever get to the end. Mm-hmm. It's too complicated. Well, it's not just intellectual though. The colors have emotional and psychological powers. Um, yeah, but people who are color deficient, and I mean people who are dichromats who have basically their color space has collapsed to a color line yeah right mm-hmm. so they can only see like blues uh degrees of blue and yellowness right there's no mm-hmm. sense of red and green no mm-hmm. opponency there at all mm-hmm. they live full functional lives you know they, they're not limited honestly in almost anything except like certain occupations <clears throat> so i don't know how important color really is that you see what i'm saying like the deeper i get into this the more i Mm. question like i Mm. came from a a point of like color is everything i love color oh you know the whole what's your favorite color well what if i have 15 what if i have 15 favorite colors and what if they change every month what if i i'm so in love with color that that it's like everything has to be color right Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. then you find out that there are people who have just as full, happy, complete lives, and they have absolutely no color sense. 
you know, by, from birth. And it makes mm -hmm. you think like, well, maybe that's just, maybe it's a construct that I borrowed from society. Maybe there's no basis to it, right? And then you're left with just like, well, maybe I should see aesthetic. Maybe it's just like the way I feel. And yet I've attended photobiology conferences where people, their whole sessions on the healing powers of color. And these aren't being given by um, patchouli wearing bead gown draped mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. California hippies. These are mm -hmm. like legit scientists from around the world mm -hmm. talking about, I'm, I didn't mean to offend anybody who fit that description. I'm just saying that it's not, <laughs> it's not fringe. This is like mainstream right. uh, perceptual science. People are looking at the effect of color on mood, behavior, migraines, seasonally affected disorder, on and on and on and on. Real science. I think I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, we, we do see the emotional reactions of all the customers who, your customers seeing colors. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you're also saying there's something like beyond that um, that goes the other direction that, that there's something very zen about you know that other comment that <laughs> that you that you made yeah that that it's just part of the existence or spiritual whatever yeah right you know there's this concept in biology called the umwelt mm -hmm. umwelt is like the conscious consciousness of other living things right so if you're studying like a raven you have to understand what its umwelt is to understand its behavior, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have, as humans, a collective umwelt that we all sort of fall mm -hmm. into. And mm -hmm. I always, always thought that people who are color deficient are just, they have their own separate umwelt because there's a whole part of the picture that is not the same, right? So, mm -hmm. and it affects how they behave. Getting back to your point about how important color is, right? Mm -hmm. so it has to be different and so when yeah. you start to realize that you start to think like well i want to understand what that umwelt is just like mm -hmm. i love birds and i'm always curious about why they're doing things mm -hmm. so i read books about them mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so i just i just think it's kind of a shame that it's treated color deficiency is treated as something that's like so alien that really children should be taught about it and everybody in the classroom who's color deficient should be identified and you know, they should talk about their experiences and there should be a way to simulate that so that everybody in the classroom can experience it. I think that we would be better humans. I'm pretty sure of it. And so you're working on that and you're, 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 you're quite proud of that development, the accessibility program that you're working on. Um, yeah, and we have simulators that can show color normals, how color deficiency appears, and then you can put our glasses on and the world looks normal again, even with the simulator on. So you can have the full experience, understand that the color part of the umwelt of the color deficient. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're going to be um, getting these into some facilities, but I can't talk about that. But sure, it's, sure, sure. it's coming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
but that's that is that also through um uh, eyewear or is it through kind of a, um, no, a lighting like a bulb you know uh, that's in yes. the lighting centralized yes. through another type of glass i guess bulbs or whatever yeah i mean you could put the filter wherever you feel like mm -hmm. literally mm -hmm. you can put the filter as a, a lens worn in front of the eyes you can mm -hmm. put it as a contact lens mm -hmm. i mean you could put it as lighting in a room mm -hmm. you can blend it in with the paints on the surfaces mm -hmm. You, there's a hundred ways to, well, not a hundred, but there's mm -hmm. many ways to change color perception, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've, you've been in a tunnel um, where they have low pressure sodium vapor lamps that put out a, basically a single wavelength of yellow. And it, it more or less simulates color deficiency. And they use them in parking lots, you know, because they don't want to interfere with astronomy. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of outdoor applications mm -hmm. for this. Mm -hmm. um, but if you've ever been in those environments, there's no color. Like I've heard people say, oh, color. I, the first time someone said this to me, I was like, dang, that's spot on. I wish I'd thought of that. They said, oh, colorblindness is like when you're in a shopping mall at night and you can't find your car because they're all the same color. Mm. And I was like, snap that's exactly it <laughs> right because it's like that understanding somebody else's perception mm -hmm. through your own experience otherwise mm -hmm. like you and yeah. i were saying you don't know who's colorblind and you don't really understand it and then mm -hmm. suddenly you meet somebody who is and then your consciousness shifts but if you could experience that you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then come back to your your perception that's mm -hmm. very healthy Mm -hmm. It's healthy for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So and uh, mm -hmm. we're doing that. We're going to be right. doing it um, in, a, in in some environments where literally millions of children will experience it. Mm -hmm. Coming I soon. Also, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. It, that would be that would be exciting and it will be uh, uh, help so many people, especially children. But I also like this other point that you were making. I, which I hadn't thought of, it goes both ways. It's not like just these people are deficient and or even handicapped and we're helping them with this concept of womb weld and that maybe they have something uh, that we do not have. And Absolutely. maybe there's a reason evolutionarily that uh, there are a certain percent of the male population that has, you know, uh, that have the, this deficiency, I understand they actually are better at uh, distinguishing camouflage. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so they have something uh, just like animals. Some animals have um, superior vision, and some may have poorer vision, but they have um, other faculty senses. Oh, God, you nailed it. See, in the in the primate world. Mm -hmm. There's a textbook case of this. New world monkeys. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Old world monkeys are trichromatic color vision like we are. Oh, yeah. New world, okay. new world monkeys, almost without exception, are dichromats except okay. for the females. Mm. The females are still trichromats. Okay. So the tr these are matriarchal troops. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. females. Imagine these monkeys, low branches are mm. on the, the 
forest floor. She looks up, she looks at some fruit. It's yellow. It hasn't crossed the color boundary in this, uh, you know, single mindedness forest where everything's connected. It hasn't told the monkey, come pick me and disperse my fruit. It's saving a lot of energy by mm. telling the monkey, don't come up here. Mm. Also, don't pick me. I'm not ripe. That would just waste mm. my seed. Mm -hmm. So when it crosses the boundary, the monkey knows, and she takes the troop up into the trees and they feast. Mm -hmm. So what advantages is it? Why are the males dichromats? Because they hunt insects. And the insects are disguised against birds mm -hmm. who are trichromats or are tetrachromats. Mm. So just like the colorblind soldiers who could look at aerial maps and identify camouflage mm. instantly, the male primates can see the insects who are, who are color disguised for trichromatic vision, they stand out like, you know, like bad paint jobs, just like there they are, so they can okay. grab them. So it's like this benefit to the troop that they can hunt with great efficiency, but they also, the females, mm. you know, balance their diet, just like, mm. just like a, a good female would do in a, in a relationship. Right. <laughs> no, I don't think beer and hot dogs is a, a complete <laughs> diet you know, dear. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what you were talking about. Like this, the benefit mm -hmm. is there, but because we don't really pay attention to it, we don't even know what it is yet. Exactly. Mm -hmm. you know? And then these outlier cases, oh, they read maps and can mm -hmm. see camouflage, but that's just like such a, a you know, it's an inadequate, <laughs> example i think it's cool but there's a lot more to it so part of that is to educate colored normal vision people mm -hmm. how to perceive it how to understand it and the best time to do that is at a young age because mm. then there'll be this natural empathy that will develop curiosity mm -hmm. and respect awe i mean we mm -hmm. don't know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It'll, be, it'll be interesting to see what happens so, so for the for the young age, um, I understand their brains are more plastic, and so if you do it, then um, would it have longer? Would it have bigger impact? Um, that would it have more permanent, or do like in terms of training the brain to? Yeah, you know, there's a whole whole controversy whether neuroplasticity is even higher in, in, in the young brain. There's some evidence that it doesn't matter. Okay. But um, it's probably more like attentiveness or something or mindfulness that affects okay. learning as okay. you get older. I don't okay. know. That's okay. probably what they call junk science, what I just said. Okay. So probably okay. want to take that with a grain of salt. But um, we have evidence that's come out in the last year and a half, but especially this year, that there's perceptual learning mm -hmm. of color mm -hmm. for the people who are colorblind when they put our glasses on. And that this is happening in adults. So, you know, there's the plasticity issue, the young mind, 
I think I think they might be de uh, decoupled ideas in this case because okay. the the evidence shows that that um, you can record signals at the cortical level mm -hmm. using EEG. Mm -hmm. You can measure these, what they call visually evoked potentials in the mm -hmm. primary visual cortex. Mm -hmm. For somebody who's color deficient, you can show them colored uh, fields, right? Say it has, one has blue in it. And you can see whether their blue sensitive photopigment fires. And you can show them something that has green in it, mm -hmm. see if they're, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll find if somebody who has like uh, deuteronomaly, they don't get a firing for, for, for a green stimuli. Mm -hmm. It doesn't invoke a, a, a potential, electrical potential. Okay. They can put our glasses on and they can take the test again and there's a signal. Okay. And then mm -hmm. if they wear the glasses for some length of time, like mm -hmm. a week or two, Mm -hmm. and they test them again without the glasses, the mm -hmm. signals there when they're shown the stimuli. Mm. So what's that all about? Mm. How can that even be? Mm -hmm. How can they have learned in such a short period of time mm. what this stimulus is? And it's not just that they've learned it. I mean, it's, it's at the level of conscious perception. Mm -hmm. That when I, when I, when that first data came out in, January of this year, mm. I, I, I'm surprised I didn't get it run over like a uh, run over by a bus like Antonio <laughs> Gaudi did walking around imagining <laughs> something right because I was just like in a day like oh my god, oh my god. but <sighs> it's like it's real yeah, yeah we're still trying to interpret what it means and there's yeah. follow-on studies that are being done okay and clinical studies so well, I mean, I, I'm asked about children because I also wanted to ask about the other end of the spectrum, the, the aging related. Well, I, you see, you. I, yeah. um, <laughs> I used to have perfect vision. I was very proud of it until a couple of years ago during the pandemic, I had to renew my uh, license and I couldn't pass the eye exam. It was so traumatic. I, then I realized, oh, no wonder I had been having some trouble looking at, you know, in the shopping uh, aisles when I in in the supermarket. So, right. you know, obviously I've got, I think, I guess it's called presby. Presbyopia. Presbyopia. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, it's, so it's a fancy now. way of saying farsightedness. Farsightedness yeah. for the uh, for the closer engine. This is just an unfortunate um, sign of aging, which I've come to accept <laughs> gracefully but um so so there's something aging related with color vision yes. as well yeah one way or the other yeah and so how Absolutely. does that well that there's about? a lot of diseases that affect blood flow to the retina okay and so you can end up with cell death so mm. you photopigments your photopigments can die mm. um and it tends to affect the your the short wavelength blue light the most because your blue photopigments are sparse okay compared to the other ones right the, the the other ones the green sensitive and red sensitive cones and so if you lose it's more uh costly to lose the same amount mm. of blue sensitive cones so but it also affects your your other cones and the, the probably the two biggest diseases that lead to this are 
age-related macular degeneration mm -hmm. and uh, diabetes retinopathy type 2. And it, it's about, if you sum them, it's about three times more than all of the color deficient people. So it's actually a larger problem, mm. right? But it's different because they have, you're never going to have, have the viral video yeah. moment because they already, they already know what the colors look like. Right? Mm. And, and it's more gradual, I would think. It's more gradual. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a progressive, progressive disease. They don't just wake up one day and they can't see color. So uh, yes, our glasses really do assist with that. In fact, the same scientist who has done this visually evoked potential study on color deficiency that was published in uh, Nature Eye in January, he has not published it yet, but he has done the same studies with our glasses on some people with age-related macular degeneration. And they've shown instantaneous you know, 80% improvement in their color vision. Just put them on, they can see, they can take tests and see everything. So mm. the, the underlying idea is still there, okay. right? And the reason that, the, that it works is this. Now imagine, take the case of like a progressive age-related dis disorder, right? To your color vision. So you're losing your photopigments. So what does your brain do in response to that? It has all these mechanisms that are tied into perception, like, oh, here's the signal coming from the eyeball, gets processed, goes through the visual centers, and it's like, here's a mechanism that's tuned to redness, because that's how it organizes, right? Here's one to greenness, whatever. Has maybe a hundred different mechanisms, like little groupings of cells that take in that input information and determine based on the signal ratios, what color is it? So cool, right? Mm -hmm. So these mechanisms say they go from you know, zero to a hundred. And so the reddest red thing you've ever seen represents kind of like a hundred, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And down at the bottom, there's very dull color, but there's a lot of noise, right? Cause there's always noise in all these mechanisms right so there's down here is noisy and up here is you know the brightest thing you've ever seen that's red so now you're color deficient or you're losing your color vision sight so now you can you start to see less and less mm. intense reds but you still want to use your full mechanism so there's little knobs you know chemical knobs that basically turn up the gain so that you can now use your full mechanism again, even though your perception maybe has dropped 50%. So the problem with that is that the, the noise also comes up. Mm. <clears throat> so now you have a problem because you have a very noisy system, mm. right? So your signal has been boosted, but so mm. is the noise. Yeah. And the thinking is, is that what our eyewear does is it reestablishes something like a higher color contrast or higher saturation mm -hmm. parent saturation for those colors that used to be super saturated now look saturated so your gain now can go back down mm. your gain no longer has to be boosted okay and it maybe goes back down to normal mm -hmm. if you wear the glasses enough 
your noise drops, you take your glasses off, and you can still see the signal. Strangest so, so, thing. So it's like a training or a perceptual learning process. Okay. And okay. and it's vague because a lot of the a lot of the words in the sentence are missing. It's kind of like uh, but, but, but it's like it's not there yet. People don't understand it, but they're a lot of vision scientists are very curious about this. Like, mm. what does it mean? Could you use mm. this as rehabilitative therapies for mm. people who could you reduce the number of age-related injuries, 80% mm -hmm. of injuries in the elderly is caused by visual mishaps. Oh, yeah? Yep, tumbling. I was going to ask, like, you know, in real life, practically, yeah. how, how is this affecting age? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's age? like, yeah, some it's, examples. yeah, people fall. People fall because they put their hand out and the railing's not there. It's like, or the, mm. they see, a, they think it's a, a hole, but it's just a shadow, right? Because mm. color tells you where the where things start and end. Mm. So you, they, they have trouble determining the edges of things, relative spatial orientation of objects, mm. right? The world becomes flattened and, Interesting. and a know, little dangerous. Well, my, wow, my parents, uh, my mom has fallen quite a, a number of times. Unfortunately, uh, hasn't broken it anything yeah I, I wonder if it has anything to do with with, with this um, ask wow. ask her ask her what's going on hmm. yeah interesting that's what i would okay. do okay so, and then also you you could benefit this from this too but there are uh nutraceuticals you can take that help strengthen the photopigments well he she's been taking nutraceuticals for for vision for you know, yeah. dry eyes and vision in general but i don't we haven't thought of, of anything that's that's pigment or color related well there are color vision tests that can assess her color vision okay okay right see if she oh. has like any early onset okay, okay. color vision loss okay so yeah it's a I saw a number like in 19, 2014, they, I think the cost, the caregiving cost was something close to $70 billion mm. for uh, age-related injuries. Mm. So it's a huge, it is a huge cost. And one of the things they've, I've, I've done a bunch of reading on this. And one of the things that happens to people who are, uh, elderly and start to have accidents is they be, become they become shut-ins right because they become shut-ins shut-ins yeah they don't go out they don't drive uh, anymore yeah. they don't go outside because yeah. you know they might go to the curb to get their paper but they're not mm -hmm. going to walk down the street because they mm -hmm. if they fall they can hurt themselves sure mm -hmm. and so the world becomes this sort of hostile place mm -hmm. and it reminds me of people telling me about being colorblind uh like congenital colorblindness they'll say i'm really i don't go shopping downtown because i can't tell where the red curbs are hmm. right or at twilight i, I never draw, drive past five o'clock because at twilight i can't tell the street lights from the green traffic lights they're the same color mm. right and so it's like, it's like risk management mm. so it's okay, like a, wow. a less a less full life like you were mm. talking, we were talking about food to begin with, but there, 
serious safety issues. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about the educational barriers, mm-hmm. right? And then there's, of course, mm-hmm. employment. Mm-hmm. But for the for people who start to lose their color vision, acquired mm-hmm. color deficiency, mm-hmm. I think that that's something that should be addressed mm-hmm. because they already know what they're what they what they want to get back. Right. It's not controversial. Yes. They, like, they, it's not like they don't know what they've been missing. Well, um, there's, but, there's, there's some pretty reactionary responses to us even talking about correcting color deficiency. Because there are mm-hmm. people who are saying, well, there's nothing wrong with their vision. So you're treating them like they're like they have a deficiency. Um, they don't like the, the word deficient. They don't like the word blind. I don't either. But I don't, I've never been able to figure out an alternative. And when I go to vision science conferences, the vision scientists say colorblind and color vision deficient Mm -hmm. so it's like this i went through this like tussle like well how to color week because i that's (sighs) also been called that you know in the 19th century okay um but i don't know so there's a lot of advocacy like it just it's not needed i don't know if that's the right place to place emphasis but well but my point is i agree with you baby but the point is that for color acquire color deficiency mm-hmm. you're just restoring something that they mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. are now missing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think anytime you can do something like that that's a mm-hmm. benefit like it's mm-hmm. like okay we're going to slow your progression right or mm-hmm. restore it like who doesn't want that right and preventing falls oh. wow this is very personal to me <laughs> for both my parents i know <laughs> yep. yeah yeah wow okay um all right. Well, I want to talk to you some uh, about business as well, um, because some of my audience <laughs> is um, you uh, know, my uh, my Achilles heel. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, that well, you you're an entrepreneur and you personally experienced this. So, and and, and many can relate to that. So, um, did you? What was um? Uh, did you? What was kind of the strategic or? commercial and business challenges that you had to deal with or or um, uh, decisions that you had to make. For example, I know that we talked about how difficult to convince people when they didn't know um, what they were missing. And of course, you would not be finding it easy to sell to them. And I know that you had the color balloons uh, as a marketing uh, mm-hmm. tactic or strategy that, that was effective. But in terms of as a uh, as a uh, inventor and co-founder of a company, did you also have to decide whether to raise money and be independent and growing this, or did you think about other route? For example, you know, pitching to a bigger company and some like Bosch Long or or whatever. Uh, not that I would have done it because I'm kind of an irreverent, irreverent entrepreneur myself, but I'm just curious, especially after your involved investors and other, you know, executives, what were some of the business decisions, the tough ones that you had to make? Well, we, we raised money through friends and family. That's how mm-hmm. we got started. Mm-hmm. Right. And we never really had to raise again after that. We mm. took in some investment. Uh, see, that was 2010. We took in some investment around 2015 or so. Um, 
and we courted we were courted by a company that wanted to uh, put a lot of money into the business and for various reasons there was never consensus about whether we should do that mm. and we didn't do it but mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, in hindsight I kind of wish we had done it because I think my life would have been my personal life would have been a lot easier um, how, I, lo- I love to travel so? I love okay. to travel okay and I don't necessarily want to live the rest of my life in the Bay Area mm. and so it would have possibly given me an opportunity to move someplace else okay i you I know as, to as, that as well you know the company has weathered some tough times lately because of uh covid and you know this weird uh re- inflation recession cycle has mm-hmm. a lot of people really skittish mm-hmm. and we rely on internet sales trap and traffic to mm-hmm sustain us and that's that's suffered like Mm. a lot of people Mm. so probably the big that's the biggest financial hurdles we faced were not in the past they're in the present okay so that's why it's hard for me to say like well no in the past i see the problem is that being a serial entrepreneur i've had businesses yeah you know and I, you know, it's that, that maybe correctly attributed Churchillian uh, success is going from, dis- dis- from disaster to disaster with enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, I don't know. They, there's some controversy whether he said that, but it's a great quote and it's a good credo to operate with if you're an entrepreneur, right? Because mm-hmm. there's no guarantees. You know, people are like, oh, yeah, but you, you'll never get fired. Well, sometimes the world <laughs> fires you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it depends. It's just a matter of who fires you. Is it your boss <laughs> exactly. or your customers, right? <laughs> exactly. So I, in 2008, I had a business that I had taken on investors, and I, my, my ownership was in the tens of millions. And the, co- the company went, over, went under when the economy collapsed because it was a recycled glass building product company. Mm-hmm. Whole nother life I lived. Mm. Um, and those things happened. Mm-hmm. And I found out on my birthday. Oh. I, I remember I got a call and I was just mm-hmm. like, ah, let's see, that could be thought of as a really bad omen. Or I could just be like, okay, well, thank God I have other things I can do. That's mm. like, so that's what I did. I just, I, I pushed, I persevered. I had two business proposals I'd written and I had to choose one. I almost did a coin toss to, oh, do, yeah? the, to do the color blindness mm. I wear. Because mm. the other one was, had bigger societal impacts. Mm. But, you know, here I am. And the good thing is, is that I would say I have climbed the mountain and I understand color vision deficiency. Mm. I can say that I actually understand it. And I mm. understand sort of the umwelt of the color deficient. Mm. And I have a deep appreciation for existence coming mm. out of all this. And the business part of it has definitely added to my appreciation of existence. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's part of it. 
I just have like I don't know. I would say that probably the, the these are the biggest business lessons is that if somebody offers you a sack of money <laughs> and you're expecting two sacks of money, you should probably take the sack of money. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because it can be two sacks pretty quickly. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Okay. So that's about it on the business part. I mean, we have a a really top-notch CEO who started uh, a year and a half ago, who came out of Stanford. Um, and it's just really brilliant, really just understands psychology, business, okay. and is like a very good soul. So mm. it's like that combination. Mm. And, you know, we had, we had to downsize a bit mm. this year because mm -hmm. of COVID, mm -hmm. and the weird economy cycles, but we're actually very strong. And our research department is just, um, you know, it's like the Manhattan Project. Like literally oh, we're yeah. coming up with new ideas daily mm -hmm. to like solve very complicated projects. We have some, you know, have an NSF grant that we're ready to submit. A lot of interest from industry. So it's a good time. Mm. and. Because I feel like uh, I've reached the point of like a, a sensei, I, my, my knowledge is so deep about this, yeah. that I feel like there's almost no project I can't take on. Mm. So it's a great feeling, mm. right? And so the mm -hmm. money part, it's going to fix itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't focus mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. And thank God there are people in the company that who do this right. and probably enjoy it as much as I enjoy science. Mm -hmm. like, so, so it, what are it's you? Like, it's like my kidney doesn't tell my heart how to function, and <laughs> vice versa. It's like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I know, but no, it, they're connected. It is for me. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, what are you, um, just closing up, what are you next aspirations? Oh, well, we're, we have a grant that, you know, the National Science Foundation, you do something called the pitch. You tell it, like I have an idea oh, yeah? and then if they like it they tell you to pursue it and then they typically fund it if it's you know well written and coherent oh yeah and uh so we we're doing that right now we're, you mean we're the ready. company yeah the company okay. has like a, a grant we're submitting for very very clever chemistry around contact lenses oh yeah that would allow a contact lens version for the aged for the acquired color deficiency and for mm. hereditary because mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of situations where people don't want to wear glasses mm. like uh there's a stigma attached to it and aesthetics blah blah blah, blah, blah. although but, i mean glasses can also be a fashion item themselves yeah i hear you <laughs> yeah yeah but they're, they're also not as universal like you if you go outside just put on a different pair of glasses or true and we're also working with some with a uh, some very very cool uh big projects that are just gonna if we if we're successful and develop developing them will seriously change architecture architecture oh yeah yeah here we're working on some really out there stuff houses but, you mean <laughs> like literal architecture yeah or 
yeah, yeah. The, okay. the built the built environment is something i've always uh, been passionate about oh. um and me personally i have got a lot of but we're also working on a bunch of other projects because we're we're expanding our line of project products in the eyewear yeah um we've redesigned them so that they're even more effective because mm-hmm. uh, now we understand the science at a very mm. deep level mm. got a lot of patents we're shoving out the door um like i said i have uh, i also have like this interest in a lot of other things and i've been work thinking about and working on uh a water harvesting idea for about five seven years working through all the nuances Mm. to make a water from air collector that has uses no energy Hmm. because otherwise they're not very it's not very practical so i've been thinking about that and working on that for a number of years and and i have some food projects that are pretty cool (laughs) i'm really interested in growing food that's healthy yeah that's like this whole notion that like eh, i don't don't know if you remember this but people poo-pooed organic gardening for years and then they were like, okay, it's healthier for you, but there's no way you can grow organic food for everybody, right? And as all those messaging was coming from the, like the pesticide and fertilizer mm. companies and the seed companies, which are like, mm. there's only four of them now or something. And so I've just been pushing back against that mm. silently in my mind mm. and, you know, biding my time when I have the, the time and the focus that I can work on something like that. Because I, I really am passionate about water water sustainability and food sustainability Mm -hmm. i just don't Mm -hmm. see how you can have a society without those two things well two things that are dearly needed at the moment for humanity yeah so the color vision Mm -hmm. thing it's great i feel i feel like i've really contributed something to make a better world but there's you know it's 24 hours in a day Well, always the inventor, Don. <laughs> a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you Likewise. so much. I and will keep in touch, hopefully. Yes, please do. And I look forward to hearing more about your new surprises, serendipity or not. <laughs> so, okay. All right. Well, stay in touch. Um, it, was very, me... it was very nice to talk to you. Very. I kept forgetting that you were... We were just not just having a conversation. It's quite a skill. Oh, that is so nice to hear. I'm...